0: Welcome to Shouts of Grace Radio, practical conversations from God's Word hosted by Utah's own Pastor Steve Pearson of Redemption Hill Church in Saratoga Springs. At Shouts of Grace Radio, it's our purpose to encourage you to see the Bible as God's source of truth for everyday life and grace as the foundation for a genuine relationship with God. Today, we're taking a break from our regular format to sit in on the teaching ministry at Redemption Hill Church. So get out your Bible, flip to 1 Kings, and let's get started.
1: If you have your bibles this morning open up to 1 Kings chapter 2 Last week, as we start off in chapter one, we saw this transition of power. You guys remember King David. And well, now he's old. He's a well-worn saint. And the power is transitioning to his son Solomon. But we saw something interesting. That in that transition, there was a guy, Solomon's brother, David's other son, that thought he would take advantage of a situation. So he set himself up to be king. His name was Adonijah. He had a party for himself. He invited all the popular people to celebrate his coronation, right? And meanwhile, while he was doing that, there was a humble coronation ceremony taking place where the father, David, was anointing the son, Solomon, to be the real king. There were actually two thrones that existed for a very short period of time until a guy ran into the party, to the keg party of Adonijah, and said, we got a problem. And he said, what is it? Your father, David, the father, has made his son, Solomon, the real king, at which point that brother's party emptied out, and everyone realized they were at the wrong celebration, and Adonijah did something. He realized to depose the king meant you died. He realized he was a dead man. And so what did he do? He did the only thing a dead man could do. He ran into the sanctuary or to the, to, to the temple and he grabbed hold of the horns of the altar. It was where the blood touches each of those horns, where the sacrifice was bound and where mercy was sought. And it's an amazing picture of how when a person realizes that they're not the king of their life, when they realize that their life has deposed the true king selected by the father... And they understand that they've only got one option. They dismantle their kingdom. They step down off their throne and they go run and they grab the horns of the altar where the sacrifice was bound and they ask for mercy. And on that plea, Solomon says, if he will do well, take him down, he can live. And on that day, Adonijah was granted life. We also saw that leadership is expressed in two different ways, a godly way and a worldly way. Adonijah set himself up as king, and we're told there in chapter one that when he did, he came in on a chariot, with horsemen. He came in with a sign of strength and power. The fake king did. But the true king, Solomon, his father set him on a donkey and had him ride in with servants, a sign of humility. And we saw that the father selects the one and the leader who rides on the donkey, not the chariot. Something he made abundantly clear 2,000 years ago. When he chose the son and set the son on the donkey, Jesus did not come into Jerusalem proclaiming himself to be king on a chariot. He came humbly on the selected mule that the father chose for him. Amazing picture. This morning, the cargo from chapter one is now going to be offloaded into chapter two by way of a punch list. If you don't know what a punch list is, in construction, you have a project. Once you complete the project oftentimes there's a lot of little tiny things that need to be kind of sewed up. And so the inspector will walk through, the superintendent will walk through, and he'll write down a punch list. This needs to be painted, this scratch needs to be fixed, whatever it is. And then once the punch list is completed, then the job is actually done. So here in chapter 2, Solomon is king, but there's a punch list. There's a few things that need to be tied up in order to complete the, the, the transfer of power. Loose ends, if you will. First Kings chapter two, look at verse one. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commands, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me saying if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in a time of war and putting the blood of war on his belt and around his waist and on his sandals and on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let this gray head go down to the grave in peace. And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, "I will not put you to death with the sword." Now therefore, do not hold him guiltless. For you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to the grave. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. You ever touch a hot stove? (laughs) You'll only do it once, right? When you touch a hot stove, immediately you get burned. There's actually kind of a two-second delay before it reaches your nerves and reaches your brain, and your brain sends back word that says, ouch, get off, right? But when you touch a hot stove, you immediately get burned. And listen, that burn keeps us from touching it in the future. Right. In fact, I would say this, not only does it immediately burn us and, and keep us away from the stove, it also makes us aware of the heat even when we're around it. So a lot of times you'll just see uh, one of your, 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 uh, your kids or your spouse will be next to the stove and you'll say, be careful, that burner's hot. But what if you were able to walk up to the stove to the burner You were able to touch that stove. You were able to sit on that stove. You were able to dance on that stove. And the burn didn't come for three months. One of the most enticing things about sin is the delayed response and the consequences associated with that sin. Let me say that again. One of the most enticing things about sin is the delayed response in the consequences that are associated with that sin. One of the most attractive, one of the most alluring things about sin is the reality that the burn often doesn't come till three months later. Right? It lures us in. And, and it's in this space, in that space, you guys, between the committing of the sin and the retribution of that sin where our hearts embrace the deception that God is somehow passive towards that sin. That God doesn't see that sin or recognize it. You guys, how many this morning, listening in here and listening online, have, have felt convicted by something that you've done, right? Right? And and God shows up in the middle of the night and he says, stop it. He answers your conviction while you're in the middle of it. Hey, stop it. Hey, don't do that. What are you doing? This isn't good. And we even agree with it. And there's a conviction and we're like, oh man, I got to stop doing this. How many of you have been there? Then one month goes by. And six months goes by. And a year goes by. And though the conviction was there, we never did anything about it. And then finally, she finds out and the marriage is ruined. Finally, you get pulled over, and the DUI is your reality. Finally, you pull out the test kit, and you're a 16-year-old mom. Finally, you get pulled into the office, and your termination becomes your humiliation. And then we realize, then we realize that God was talking the whole time, but because the burn didn't accompany the touch the heart kept going because because we didn't feel the pain right away, we got set in to doing it. Here's how Solomon puts it in Ecclesiastes eight eleven because sentence against an evil deed is not executed on the spot, the heart of man gets fully set into doing evil. In other words, folks, because the burn didn't come for three months, we touched, we danced, and we walked on the burner, thinking. everything would be fine. Folks, in 27 years of walking with Christ, listen, God has never allowed me to get away with sin. Ever. Be sure your sin will find you out. Never one time. And listen, you guys, many times God has allowed the burn to be my greatest instructor where I danced and I thought everything was fine and the burn came and the burn instructed me, listen, the
0: child of God will learn from the burn. You're listening to Shouts of Grace Radio with Pastor Steve. At Shouts of Grace Radio, we're thankful for the encouragement from Key Radio, reaching Utah on the airwaves with the good news of eternal life from their station in Provo, Utah. Key Radio can be found online at keyradio.org, and your support of Key Radio makes programs like Shouts of Grace Radio possible. Now, let's join Pastor Steve for the conclusion of today's message.
1: You guys, I want us to see something here. That's pretty profound. Look at 1 Kings chapter 2. Look at verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And she said, Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. Why is that profound? You guys remember David's failure. Remember when he was supposed to go out to war, he went out on the balcony, he saw this woman who was bathing, she was hot, and he said, man, I gotta have her. So he sent his men down to grab the Sheba, who was the one who was bathing, he brought her up, the married woman, whose husband was off fighting in war, and he laid with her. And he got her pregnant, and then said, "Uh uh-oh, this ain't good. So he thought, well, we'll just do this. I'll go to Joab and I'll send a message and bring her husband Uriah back and let's just kind of give him a sabbatical. Hey, bro, come on in here. Be with your wife. You fought hard. Go ahead and be with her. Trying to cover. At which point Uriah said, man, I can't do that. My, My friends are out dying. So he got him drunk like any good honorable king would do. And guess what? He just passed out and he still wouldn't do it. So what did he do? He wrote a letter to Joab and he said, hey man, take him, stick him on the front lines and when he's in the heat of the battle, pull everybody back and let him die. And so Joab did it and he died and word came back, Uriah is dead and David said, oh my gosh, okay, you want to be my wife, Bathsheba? And he got away with it because after all, if he's married and she comes up pregnant nine months later, it's, it's normal until he got a knock on the door and Nathan the prophet came and said, man, God saw everything you did. He saw everything you did, and because you have done this, the child that will be born to you in Bathsheba will die. David said, man, I'm sorry. He said, you're forgiven, but the child will die. Death and destruction came from his sin. After the loss of their baby, David and Bathsheba had another son, and his name was Solomon. 1 Kings 4.30, listen, 1 Kings 4.30 says he was the wisest man alive. And in Luke 11.31, Jesus alludes to that wisdom. You guys, don't miss this. What's the point? In the wake of David's greatest failure, in in the wake of his most humiliating defeat, you guys, in in the aftermath of his greatest act of betrayal and unfaithfulness, wisdom was born. Wisdom was born. The child of God learns from the burn. And what comes from our failure? What ought to follow the failure? First will be death. It will be destruction. It will be ruin. It will be hurt. But the child of God, when he learns from the burn, what follows that is the birth of wisdom. It comes into your life. You understand now. I touched the married woman. Man, I'm going to avoid the path that even takes me there. You understand now. I got addicted. I'm going to avoid the friends that call me there. What comes from the destruction ought to be a learning, a wisdom. If you've walked with Christ for five years, 10 years, 20 years, your whole life, you, where you sit today in your maturity, you have hurt people along the way. Your sanctification process God making you holy. In the process of that, you have said things, you have done things that have not been good, that have not been wise, and you've hurt people. And God could take care of the hurt, but what does he do? He teaches you and me. We learn from that burn. And so if you're sitting here today and you no longer say and do the dumb things you used to do, you used to do them and somebody doesn't like you in this world because you did it to them. And in God's eyes, you're worth it. You learn from the burn. You guys, wisdom is born from it. The child of God will learn. But though you beat and grind a fool into mortar, Proverbs 27, 22 says he'll never depart from his folly. They don't learn. You guys, in our narrative this morning, it is burn day for three out of four people. That is, folks, these people, they touched They sat on, they danced on the burner for years and they were never burned. But on this day, they are having a collision with the reality that their perception of God's passivity in regard to their past conduct was not to be confused with his mercy for the sinner, not his enablement of them. They're going to come to the reality that God never approved of their sin he never, he never was passive towards their sin. He gave them time to repent. And now, now it's payday. Let's take a look. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. David charges Solomon, as a man, obey the, cast, o- obey the statutes, obey the commands. You know, the world has its version of a man. You know, you know what God's version is? Obey the word. Obey the statutes. Do the right thing. Solomon, be a man. Then beginning in verse 5, he hands Solomon the punch list. He mentions three people. One of the three, David tells Solomon to pay back good for their past conduct. Look at verse 7. Deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, let them be among those who sit at your table because they met me with loyalty when I fled from your brother Absalom. In the hardest time of my life, David says, there was a group of people when I was fleeing that came along and gave me what I needed. They gave me food, they gave me drink, they took us in, they were loyal men. Listen, in the end, pay back the good conduct for what took place before. And that is God's heart. He does not overlook the good that you do. Do not be weary in well-doing, the word says, for in due season you will reap your reward. God will be a debtor to no man, and when man's conduct honors him, man may receive the reward there, and he may not receive it until the day he stands in glory, but God does not forget the conduct that honors him. Then, in the punch list, David mentions two others that need to be dealt with. When Solomon begins to deal with these two, in chapter 2, he's going to add two more rebellious loose ends. In verse 5, David begins by saying, it is time to deal with Joab. For years, Joab served as the captain of David's army for almost four decades. He was a military man. Joab was David's nephew. He was born to Zeruiah, David's sister. And Joab, Joab just kind of did whatever the heck Joab wanted to do. That was his life. He was a man who lacked self-control and he was extremely problematic for the king and he blew his fuse often. He disobeyed David's command to spare the life of his son Absalom and when he found Absalom hanging, he took three of his own javelins and he stuck him through. He did what he wanted. He showed no principle when David wrote him a letter and said, take this married man whose wife I just knocked up, take him and throw him on the front lines so he can die, so I can marry the wife and cover my sin. Okay, he showed no principle whatsoever. And he did what he needed to do in order to maintain his position. But there are two instances mentioned here in 1 Kings that define who this man really was. Look at verse 5 again. Moreover, you know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me. How he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on his sandals and on his feet. David tells Solomon, Joab wears war. He wears it on his belt and he wears it on his feet. The belt was the center of the body. The waist speaks of the reproductive organs. In other words, at the center of Joab's life was war, and what he reproduced in others was war, and on his feet representative of the paths that he chose to walk, on his feet was war. Everywhere he went, he took with him war. He took with him controversy. He took with him this strong ride, the chariot strength of a leader everywhere and everything he did, he did with war in his heart. And David tells his son, Solomon, since he has chosen to live with war at the center of his life and war on the path of his feet, since he's chosen to live that way, you make sure he dies that way. In other words, do not let that old man die in peace. Since he's wreaked havoc on righteous people, since he's caused controversy everywhere he's gone, you make sure he dies the same way. David references two offenses that Joab was responsible for that caused the king great distress and tells us who he was. The first was the murder of a man named Abner, and the second was the murder of a man named Amasa. Turning your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 2, flip over a couple pages. Let me set the scene for you. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, King Saul is dead. And there's a two-year period where the house of Saul is warring with the house of David. Remember, years earlier, Samuel had come to the house of Jesse, and he had looked for the king that God wanted to anoint. He went through six of Jesse's sons, and God said, that ain't it. And he said, do you have anyone else? We got this little ready guy, David. He pours the oil over his head. He anoints David as a youth. Saul takes David into his house for years. He plays him beautiful worship music so he can feel better about his sin. And then one day, the song is saying, "David has slain his ten, uh, has thousands. David is ten thousands. And from that day on, Saul sought to pin David to a wall. This is the background. David is going to be king of all of Israel. Well, Saul is dead, and now this this guy Ishbosheth, which is which is Saul's son, is made king for a couple of years. And the two sides are warring, and Saul's side is losing. Well, on Saul's side, he had a commander of the army. Remind you. All these guys know each other because they used to be one house, and now they're separated. Well, the commander of Saul's armies his name is Abner. And the commander of David's armies is Joab. They knew each other. They were in the same circles in the military. Now they're just fighting against each other. Well, Abner and Joab meet up at this pool called Gibeon here in chapter two, and they have these weird war games. But as they start to do this battle, Joab's forces start to beat up on Abner's forces. And Abner decides, i got to get out of here. So he talks tail and he runs. Abner rendezvous with his men on a hill. And Abishai and Joab are at the bottom. And this is what Abner says to men that he knew in 2 Samuel 2.26. As Abner stands with his men looking down, Shall the sword devour forever, Joab? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? Joab, we're on the same side, and this isn't going to end well for anybody. And how long, Joab, are you going to tell your people to keep pursuing their brothers, to keep hating And keep dividing from family and friends. It is not going to end well for anybody. And Joab is responsible because everything he produced around him, his friends, his family, all they did was hate. As long as we're fighting each other, we're on the same side. Nobody's going to win this.
0: Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Shouts of Grace Radio, practical conversations from God's Word hosted by Pastor Steve Pearson. We hope you've been encouraged to see the Bible as God's source of truth for everyday life and grace as the foundation for a genuine relationship with God. If today's message encouraged you in your journey following and learning more about Jesus, we would love to hear from you. You can visit us online at shoutsofgraceradio.com. At shoutsofgraceradio.com, you can listen to all of our episodes, share them online with your friends, and find out more about Pastor Steve. Shouts of Grace Radio is an outreach of Redemption Hill Church in Saratoga Springs, Utah. Thank you again for joining us on today's show. And from all of us at Shouts of Grace Radio, it is our prayer that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ.